0: Moving your mom or your dad or yourself isn't just about moving things from one place to another. It is much more complicated than that, as are so many things having to do with later life. How to Move Your Mom and Still Be On Speaking Terms Afterward provides in-depth conversations with professionals, older adults, and their family members who share their stories with warmth, understanding, and humor. I'm your host, Marty Stevens-Hiebner, and here you'll find answers to many of your questions, as well as different perspectives that I hope will inform and inspire you. Ken, welcome so much to How to Move Your Mom and Still Be on Speaking Terms Afterward. I'm very honored that you're here to talk about both your practices.
1: Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here.
0: Well, You're fantastic, and we've worked together a lot. And I just, your clients think you're wonderful, and you are a dream to work with. Alongside being part of a team with you, Ken Kossoff has been an attorney for over 35 years, and his practice is based in Westlake Village. He's a certified estate planning, probate, and trust law specialist here in California. And I don't hear a lot of people having a lot of attorneys having that certification, so that's important. He's very experienced. And compassionate when it comes to helping his clients negotiate the labyrinth of legal issues that inevitably arise as people age into their later years. He's been interviewed by the Wall Street Journal, Fox Business News, and lots of other media outlets because he's such an expert. Ken is also the founder of co-founder, pardon me, of Solo Aging Solutions, which provides Healthcare agents to uphold their clients' healthcare is- wishes should the need arise. We're going to talk about that a lot more in just a few minutes because it's a very important service and very unique that is offered through Solo Aging Solutions. So, Ken, what's your favorite memory of your grandparents?
1: Well, my favorite memory of one of my grandmothers was uh, when I was probably in my mid teens, I had an older cousin who had a lot of girlfriends and I remember my grandmother saying to me, um, you know I told him he needs to make sure his girlfriends take a pill and it's not an aspirin
0: <laughs> I love her already yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's fantastic. You also told me about a very difficult memory you had that was really yeah cool.
1: my least favorite memory of my grad same grandmother and she um had been hospitalized and then was, I'm using terms that I now know at the time, I was maybe 20, maybe 21. Uh, she was hospitalized and then discharged to either a rehabilitation facility or a skilled nursing facility. And I went to visit her for the first, actually it was the first and last time. And when I got there, she just almost was crying and pleading with me to take her out of there. And yeah, as a 20 or 21 year old, I mean, I'd never been to a skilled nursing facility before and I didn't know what to do. I knew I couldn't take her out of there. I mean, she was supposed to be there. She needed care. And it was just a very, it was traumatic, quite honestly.
0: Yeah. At that age. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for, for talking about that because I, it really emphasizes how every generation in a family is impacted when somebody's going through the, the, the difficulties that eventually arise with later life.
1: For a lot of people who are not happy of where they're at in their later lives, they might not really think about the impact that it has on, especially their, their grandchildren or great grandchildren. Um.
0: True. And all the more reason to start talking about your own later life sooner rather than later and plan for it. Yes. And speaking of planning, What's the focus of your legal work, please?
1: Well, I I do estate planning and what's known as life care planning. Uh, Life care planning is a model of practice where you have estate planning attorneys who have either a social worker or a nurse on staff, or or both a social worker and a nurse, uh, to assist clients with
0: it. It's wonderful that you have someone like that on your staff because very few attorneys do. And you really, um, I remember asking you about what drew you to this particular field of law. And you said you wanted a more holistic way of approaching people.
1: Yeah. I mean, I um, I remember I was meeting with a husband and a wife and we were talking about a whole bunch of things relating to incapacity, mortality, all the things people don't want to talk about, about their yeah. children, about their thinking about life, death, healthcare, yeah, kids, and as, we were, as they were walking out of my office, the husband turned to me and said, you know, by the time this process is over, you're going to know us better than anybody else knows us. And, you know, that made me feel good. And that, in so many respects, is true. People talk about very intimate thoughts. And uh, I like, uh, you know, I like trying to make sure that their thinking is reflected in their estate planning documents and that they're not just, you know, just boilerplate that have nothing to do with them other than their names
0: yeah and that's that's not who you are. One of the things that's really remarkable is that you really do show such compassion and empathy. What should people be asking attorneys like you when they're interviewing someone to figure out who should put together their estate plan?
1: Well, I think uh, some people are just focused on price, and I can understand that, but I think uh, um, you know the real question should be what's your approach to people in situations like mine, as I've described them to you. Um, mm-hmm. everybody comes, frankly, everybody's come to me and everybody always has a simple State no matter how complex it is. Um, they think it's simple. Uh, that's just a natural thing to say. And so I think it's really, you know, how do you approach people with, you know, in my situation? You know, and what, and kind
0: of- what, how would somebody describe your approach?
1: I think my approach is probably more in, in, you know, a, m- a more human approach. I mean, I'm not just looking at the legal and tax issues. I'm looking mm-hmm. at the human issues involved in dealing with uh, incapacity or death. And uh, so I, you know, that's why I realized, you know, even if somebody has a ton of money and could afford to have their loved one at home with care for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, life is still going to be very miserable and very difficult and they need to be prepared for that and understand they're not the first ones who have experienced it and and uh and and try and make sure that the caregiving spouse or the caregiving child is not the one who drops dead first because of all the stress involved and having a loved one who uh for whom you're responsible for caring when you've probably never done that before
0: yeah it's a whole new thing it's like being an the executor of a will suddenly you have to take care of something that you don't know anything about. And that is, it is amazing. The statistic is really frightening of how often caregivers, especially their caregiving spouses, pass away before the person they've been taking care of does because of what you said, the stress and everything and the lack of their own care for themselves.
1: Yeah, and I have seen that with caregiving spouses. I've also seen that with, you know, the 51-year-old son of an 88-year-old father. And one of the things about comparing it to an executor, I heard an attorney once who said, you know the problem is not when you die the problem is when you won't die and so um, you know being an executor or being the trustee of a trust is very complex and is very difficult but in a lot of respects pales in comparison to what you have to deal with if uh, the person you're caring for is incapacitated instead of dead you know the, the most difficult cases are the one where you know there's live issues going on i mean you know one of the most horrible things i've experienced is you know a 55-year-old diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's. And, you know, those are very difficult conversations to have with people, you know, with the person and their spouse and finding out about it and reacting to it. And and this was a person who I had known beforehand. Um, So, uh, you know, but I get a lot of satisfaction of, of, you know, just trying to be with them and walk them through what they're experiencing. So...
0: You're really showing your humanity with them, and I find that when we're working with eld- you know, in my field too, and many um, others who take care of older adults and their families, it's in a way, it's kind of lovely because you really you, you should be showing your humanity. It makes them more comfortable. And especially at the end of life, I think people really appreciate that. Now, it's interesting with the state planning, you should do a health care directive. And in terms of one's health care, when you're incapacitated, and what have you, what you were just talking about too, when people are in a coma or they have dementia or something like that, this is where solo aging solutions can be so helpful. Can you explain why you launched solo aging solutions and also who it serves and how?
1: Okay. So um, as I mentioned earlier, several years ago, six years or so now, I brought on a medical social worker onto my Mm -hmm. staff. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of times we would give presentations to senior centers or other groups, uh, or sometimes just meeting with the clients of the firm and, and invariably in every presentation we made, especially to a larger group, somebody would raise their hand and they would say, look, um, I've got somebody who could manage my money. I'm not worried about that. What I don't have is anybody who could manage my health care." Either I don't have children or, you know, my children aren't functional or live far away or I don't want to place this burden on them. And as soon as somebody would ask that question, others would chime in and raise their hands and say, we have the same issue. And and the reality of the situation is I didn't have a good answer. Um, You know, there are, you know, you can't say friends and family because if you say friends and family, they wouldn't have been asking the question. You know, and, you know, there are private fiduciaries, people who act as trustees and executors and conservators for a living. And some private fiduciaries, a lot of private fiduciaries actually will act as an agent under a healthcare directive as the price they need to pay in order to manage the money where, you know, where, Mm -hmm. you know, their skills and also revenue primarily comes from. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of them have told me they don't like doing it. Others have told me they don't think they do it very well. I mean, and, literally,
0: literally, when you're, you are the healthcare agent, you literally have people's lives in your hands.
1: Yes. And, and a lot of us just conceive of that as, you know, you get a call at four in the morning, your loved one had a stroke, we're either going to give life support or not, what do we do? But it's also if the person can't make decisions for themselves, they need to make changes in medication, they need to get authorization to change medication, mm-hmm. to make other medical decisions as to what care to uh, give them short of life support or you know what care to withhold or withdraw so um, it was because we didn't have a good answer to that question and I felt bad that uh, we created Solo Aging Solutions and you know and Solo Aging Solutions is intended to fill that gap where we will act as agents under a healthcare directive uh, we will not manage money if people ask us to manage money. The answer is no, that's not what we do. We do only healthcare decision-making. And we have to do it in two ways. Number one is to make sure that the client's desires are known on a current basis, that their healthcare conditions and prognosis are known on a current basis. And the reason why we need to know all that is because our personnel Need to feel comfortable with this enormous decision uh, you know this position of huge responsibility life and death that they now have in their hands so um you know uh, i mean my business partner katie wiltfong who's the medical social worker joined me a number of years ago at my firm what we need to do is to make sure that we're comfortable and current and that's why we established the protocol where You know, we have multiple communications with our clients on a regular basis. That's extraordinary.
0: What kind of training do your healthcare agents go through to qualify?
1: Well, I mean, Katie is a medical social worker who has more than a decade in hospice. So she's been dealing with life and death um, for a good period of time. One of the things I have told people over the years is, you know, Katie could walk into a facility and judge whether the smell is due to the fact that this is just the way some facilities smell because they're in the healthcare business or that there's a hygiene problem. So, you know, it's just, you have to feel comfortable with the issues. You have to feel comfortable with the places where your, our clients are going to be. And we have to feel comfortable that we know what our clients would want and not want in these circumstances.
0: Yeah. Well, and also possess that knowledge what kind of people are you looking, uh, would you hire as healthcare agents? What's, what would be their ideal background? I think their ideal
1: background is probably a hospice background because people in the hospice field uh, you know, have, th- this is what they do. They help people transition from life to death and to die peacefully in as little, in as little pain as possible. So I think that's a very good, I don't necessarily know perfect, but that's about as good a background as you could have. Yeah,
0: and also they're very, comfortable with the medical issues and things like that. They're well aware of how med- medications work, that sort of thing.
1: Yeah. And also because they're, yeah, you know, sometimes hospice comes in and the people pass away two days later.
0: But that happened to my times, dad. That okay. happened to my father. Sorry to interrupt you.
1: That's okay. A lot of times they're in there for weeks or months on end. And if the patient is not able to, give direction on their health care, they're very familiar with having to call the agent under the health care directive. Cause again, it's not just a situation where you get to call at four in the morning to pull the plug. It's all the steps leading to that over the days or weeks or months uh, before somebody passes away.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and suppose somebody's in a horrible car accident and they're unconscious and their leg is badly injured and the doctor says, well, we may need to amputate. An ex, somebody who's an expert like that and understands the whole background of the the uh, what will how it will affect the rest of their lives can make a knowledgeable decision. Thinking about it and who the patient is, and also listen to what the doctor is explaining, what the exact injuries are, to determine if that's really necessary to make that um, decision for the client.
1: Right, and also is that only going to impact their leg, or has their head been injured too? Is there a brain injury? You know, so. You know, that's, I think what a lot of clients, you know, there's probably a lot of people out there who would say, okay, if my leg has to be amputated, that's fine. If I'm otherwise functional mentally, um, and maybe otherwise functional physically. But on the other hand, I remember a few years ago, a client came in and was talking about how, um, the doctors had said, you know, we need to, um, to save your, you know, to let your loved one continue to live. We need to, um, amputate all four limbs. And the person said, how much longer will that give my loved one? And the doctor said two weeks. And it was like, why would they even mention that? Um, you know, that, you know, it's like, it, it, it's not an alternative, That didn't make sense at least in my opinion and certainly in their opinion, because they said no. Um, and, uh, yeah, let them go. When
0: should someone consider engaging a healthcare agent at Solo Aging Solutions?
1: Well, um, I think when you're capable of instructing uh, us on what you want to do or what you would want done in these circumstances, um, if somebody is already demented or otherwise unable to communicate to us what their desires would be, that probably means that they cannot sign a healthcare directive. Biggest surprise to us from uh, the perspective of when we first started and and how we saw our demographic is that. Um, we had a couple of referrals from attorneys of single men who were both of whom were 47 years old, total unrelated to each other. And they were just unmarried, no children, did not want their parents involved. You know, it's when people realize that, you know, they don't have anybody to make the decisions and and they want, uh, the peace of mind to know that they do have somebody to make the decisions if, if they want to participate in our program. Um, and for some people, we are just you know we are number two instead of number one again behind the kids. But if the kids can't get here because even you know for the kid who lives on the east coast, you know prior to oh March of twenty twenty, you know everybody figured you could just hop on an airplane and come out. And then we learned that maybe that's not guaranteed in the future. So we're the localized ears, yeah.
0: That's wonderful. That's so true. I love that you, ha- you can kind of be the backup if somebody can't be there. That's, that's wonderful. I didn't know that. So I'm glad I know that now.
1: Yeah. And we're also, you know, the kid is most likely going to be leaning on us heavily to try and understand what's going on and to tap into the background of, of our healthcare agents. Because the, the, the adult child, even if, unless they're in the healthcare field, probably doesn't have the background. Yeah. Right now um, we are focused in Southern California and uh, with plans to expand elsewhere. Um, hopefully in the so- not too distant future. Yeah.
0: So let's talk about a healthcare directive because if someone doesn't have one, I do, <laughs> um, they may not know what goes into it. They may be a little nervous about really exi- you know, going t- and answering all the questions. What kind of things go into a healthcare directive?
1: Well, In a healthcare directive, the first thing you're doing is appointing somebody to make decisions for you if you cannot make those decisions on your own. I mean, it is possible to give somebody immediate authority, but most people do not unless they're older or have a terminal illness, then they're pretty confident they're not going to be able to make their own decisions for a very long period of time. Um, But, you know, so you're appointing somebody, you're hopefully appointing an alternative that that person cannot serve, maybe Mm -hmm. two alternatives, and then you're trying to give them directions on what you're thinking is. Basically, you're you're basically saying if I'm in, in an irreversible condition from which death is expected in some period of time, what would I want? Um, and you could get more particular if you'd like to. You could talk about some of the things that often are not in healthcare directives. Uh, and are in what are known as PULSE, Physician Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatments, which are a different document. I was giving a presentation on healthcare directives once with a nurse, and she said in her healthcare directive, it says, you could put a feeding tube in me for 10 days. If I'm not ready to feed myself after that, just pull it out and let me go. Then what you're trying to do, regardless of what's written down, is you want to have conversations on a semi-regular basis with the agents under your healthcare directive, because what I tell clients is that you never want somebody thinking, "Am I, you know, going to let my mother die today?" Uh, you want them thinking, "You know, Mom can talk. I know exactly what she would want in this situation. I'm just her spokesperson. I'm just expressing what she would say if she were in this position. So I'm not making any decisions. She made the decisions when she told me and instructed me on what she would want and what she would not want." So. But it's still enormous responsibility that weighs heavily in the minds of the person making the
0: decision. Especially if you're family or just a very dear friend or a spouse, a partner. Let's go back to estate planning. It's really not just about a will. I think that's what people think it is. And so they download something from one of those online places and just figure, oh, I got a will. I'm done. I'm good. (laughs) Not a good idea. (laughs) Let the expert, Ken, explain it to you.
1: Okay, so I mean... The first thing is is if you're going in for estate planning what you want is a comprehensive estate plan if you're going to use a will that and not use a trust and that's a discussion you have with your attorney that's fine but a will is effective only on after you die so it does nothing during incapacity it doesn't authorize anybody to manage your affairs while you're incapacitated so the question is how's that going to happen i think for my clients i want their documents to express their views, not just the legal stuff that lawyers want to see in there, but the views of the clients. And, and you know, it's, it's, and sometimes, you know, clients should write out separate instructions or letters to their family. I mean, if, if we write a boring, if some lawyer writes a boring legal document, you know, if somebody's trying to remember their father who died three days ago, they're not going to sit there reading his trust. Um, but yes. if the father wrote a letter telling how much she loved his children and grandchildren, and you know maybe some lessons, and working on one right now where the client sort of has a message to a judge if there's ever a dispute, you know where he basically said, "I know that you know sometimes at least one side is upset with the resolution of litigation, if not both sides, and if my family is going to fight over my estate, judge, I would like you to." come up with a decision that pisses both sides off because if they're going to fight about my estate, (laughs) they should be upset because I'll be upset. And if, if, if I can do anything about it in the afterlife, I will. I mean, even when I do that, it's still boilerplate. It's important legal stuff in there, but it's boilerplate. But I like seeing, I like the client's family being able to look at the document and say, oh, this is the exact kind of thing that my father would have said. As I tell people, the only thing I know for certain is something's going to happen that we don't anticipate. And if it's addressed in the trust document, um, then it makes it easier to deal with and less likely to, you know, uh, require judicial intervention or something along those lines. You know, I had a client once who, you you know, came to me when there was a dispute with his sibling over his mother's trust, and he previously told me how proud he was that, through his efforts, his mother's trust was a lot shorter than all these long documents that most lawyers draw. And unfortunately for him, it was missing one paragraph that would have resolved the issue. And instead, he litigated with his sibling for a considerable period of time. And if one boilerplate paragraph had been in there, it would have been too late for the sibling to do
0: anything. Well, there you go. Yeah, And that's why they come to attorneys like you who are smart and know how to express why something needs to be there. And it's ridiculous because I hate to think how much money they spent on all the legal fee- fees that otherwise would have gone to them or whomever were the beneficiaries.
1: Yeah. It's amazing how much people will spend just the way I explained it is, you know, you broke my GI Joe when I was six and you were eight and we're now 66 and 68, but I'm going to get back at you for that. Um, mm-hmm. and that's sort of the way it happens. Um, and it's such so.
0: misplaced anger. Cause it's really, it, it's, it's the bigger issue is the grief and it's just being expressed in a very odd way. Or like you say, they have this old grudge or something.
1: Yeah. Deep-seated psychological issues with siblings. Yeah.
0: Go buy yourself another GI Joe is what I'd say to yeah. that person.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, one last thing I've heard. And actually my father put both my sister and I on his healthcare directive. We don't have a great relationship, and I was just relieved because we did agree on what to do, but it's it's really not a wise idea to have multiple parties on healthcare directives and as executors and trustees. Am I correct in that?
1: Well, I think it's, it's less wise to do it on healthcare directives than as trustees, and the reason I say that is because let's say you have three children, and you say... I want my three children to be my decision makers under my healthcare directive and it's majority rule. Um, and two of them say effectively pull the plug and one says, don't pull the plug. What I would expect the hospital to say for risk management purposes is go get a court order because they're not gonna wanna pull the plug on the majority rule because they're afraid that the dissenter is going to sue them. So you know, that's why I fear having more than one healthcare decision maker. Uh, some people still insist on it, and that is certainly their prerogative. And if it creates problems, they understand that. But um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm more cautious about doing that with healthcare directives than I am about um, doing that with trusts. But one of the things you can do in a healthcare directive, if you have an attorney and the attorney signs a particular affidavit saying that he or she advised you, is you could exclude people from interfering with your healthcare decisions. So if you have family members or friends, or you're concerned about some public agency that's specified in the probate code, the public guardian, um, you could list those people and effectively say they do not have standing in court to sue concerning uh, your healthcare directive and the acts that your agents are taking or declining to take.
0: If a divorce isn't final, and there's a spouse legally still hanging out there somewhere who wants to interfere. That's very important. I'm glad you shared that. Thank you.
1: Yeah, because most likely your spouse would want to kill you before you need it. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. All it's the more reason bad. not yeah. to have them yeah. interfering with your healthcare. Yeah. Ken, thank you so much for sitting down and talking with me because that informa- all of that information, was so helpful. You're a wonderful estate planning attorney and also Solo Aging Solutions. It's a unique service that's offered, and it's just wonderful. Thank you so much for being with me.
1: All right. My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for listening to How to Move Your Mom and Still on Speaking Terms Afterward. Please visit howtomoveyourmom.com for more information about this episode and for additional podcast episodes featuring other extraordinary guests and conversations. Until next time, this is your very grateful host, Marty Stevens Hebner.